I'm not sure if it's my pleasure to be here doing this or not. Um, I, I have to, I have to make a confession that I um, didn't realise I was doing this workshop until about three days ago because I thought that the workshop that I did at 11 this morning was part of this, like the two things were one and the same workshop. And then I discovered that actually, no, it was two different things. So um, I've come with a whole lot of resources and the hope that we will have a conversation, hence the idea of being in a circle, which keeps beginning to be a slightly problem, problematic. Maybe if um, you guys here could just move this way a little bit. And then, yeah, just... Um, and I've got a few exercises for us to do together too. So this is not going to be just a talk fest, but a, an opportunity to do some some working together on some skills. Um, the last two workshops, we've gone around the circle and said who we are. That could take up most of the... Um, so what I'm going to suggest you do is turn to the person next to you and introduce yourself, as you like to be known, and tell them somewhere that you're from, so it doesn't need to be where you live now, but somewhere that you, you remember fondly as a place that you are from. Um, I like this idea of where you're from or where you belong to. Um, because when we say that in Te Reo Māori, we talk about no Te Whanganui Atara I belong to Te Whanganui Atara. Um, that or, and so I'm in relationship with that piece of whenua, it's connected to some people where my fen- where my whenua was buried um, that whole kind of big connectedness so um, somewhere that you feel that you belong it might be geographical it might not be geographical it might be a community of people or a way of being so the person who's next to you share what you like to be known as and somewhere that you belong. And then the third thing I'd like you to share is, so we had this conversation before, <laughs> about how we do conflict. So um, um, my friend over there said we, he either goes quiet or he comes out as the uh, secondary school teacher. Uh, <laughs> um, so... Just have a think about how do I do? What's my, what's my kind of default when conflict comes out? What do I do? What's mine? So share something you like to be called, somewhere that you have find belonging, and your kind of default when it comes to conflict. Right. Is everybody paired up with someone, or maybe? I'm just going to stand up because it is a big, wide circle and it just yes. helps me feel a little bit more connected to the people over the top of other people. Oh, good, good. That's not because I'm trying to be formal. No. Um, uh, so, I'm Jean. I'm uh, an Anglican priest. I'm at St Peter's in Willis Street in Wellington. I've been there with um, the team of us that share the title vicar. And there's three of us. We're kind of like a holy trinity. <laughs> or an unholy trinity, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, we, we apply for the job together and we, we kind of undertake the job collaboratively. Um, and uh, I've, we've been there for five and a half years. Um, I am the daughter and granddaughter of Anglican priests and um, grew up in a vicarage and that whole kind of thing of being in a communal environment is kind of a, a 
fairly crucial part of my sense of who I am and who I have been and how I was formed. Um, and what happens when there's a whole bunch of you who live together is that there's bound to be things in which you do not agree with each other about. And as I grew up, I'm the eldest of five, and I often found myself being the bridge person between my parents and my siblings. I'm trying to get my parents to understand where my siblings are coming from and trying to get my siblings to understand where my parents are coming from. And a little later I um, joined a religious community, the Anglican Franciscans, and I found myself yet again in that role where people in the community were disagreeing with each other or un unable to see each other's point of view, and I'd be sitting there and, but can't you understand that Sister Maureen thinks this, but don't you realise that Sister Phyllis thinks this? And, um, and so that kind of thing of being a mediator and a bridge builder um, has been a large part of my kind of growth and formation and helped me, I guess, to get that sense of um, how to help other people even, but certainly for myself to, to try and walk a mile in another person's shoes, to kind of get a sense of what it looks like from a different perspective. Um, and on those days when I'm not very good at doing that, it does literally help if I move my body to another place and just try and think of it again um, from that perspective. Um, knowing that you can't ever see the whole. It's a bit like, you know, an enormous jewel has many facets, but no one can see all the facets. Um, you can see the beauty of the facets here, and if you move around here to see the beauty of the facets here, you can't see the ones around the other side anymore. Um, one of the things when I was in the parish of um, All Saints in Ponsonby, um, we uh, were part of a pilot program in the country of providing um, restorative justice um, facilitation, and so we had a group of us there who um, used to do the work of when a person um, had plead guilty to a crime um, and what were willing to or interested in entering into the restorative justice practice in the gap between when they was when they um, plead guilty and when they were being sentenced, which is often about a six-week gap, um, there was the space for us to do the work of getting them um, to engage with the people against whom they had offended. And that would happen again in a kind of communal way. So we, if they were willing to, um, we would then go and make contact with their victims and we would talk to them about the possibility of doing this and it's not about getting them off, it's just about them getting them to face up to what it is that they've done. They're willing to face up to that, they're willing to be face to face with you. You get a chance to tell your story um, and to be heard by this person who has offended against you. And sometimes it was something like a physical assault, sometimes it was theft, sometimes it was extortion. So the person had extorted another company, so it was much more kind of um, up here. But our job was to spend time with the victim and their support people and talk about what it is that they would want from that conference and then talk with the victim and their support people and talk about what they were willing to offer and what was important to them. And then we would then facilitate the actual conference. And the first half of it would be about... Um, hearing the story from each side, hearing it from the point of view of the victim and the offender, but also hearing it from the point of view of the victim's support people, and that could be a different perspective, and from the offender's support people. And then there'd be a break, and we always did this in pairs. So one of us would go with the victim and their support people, and one would go with the offender and their support people, and the 
the, the question was, what is it that you would like to ask the victims, people of the support, the offenders and their people, and what would you be willing to offer into this? Having heard the stories from each side, and one of the really critical things that happened in that first section was that often the victims began to see the offenders as real life people and not just some monster that had done this thing. And the, the offenders will begin to see the victim as a real life person and not just this privileged, entitled whoever that they've you know, taken what they deserve from. Um, and so then having they would come together again and these ones would say what they would really like to happen and these ones would say whether they were willing to do that and we would then facilitate a conversation around how is that going to be achieved because we will write a report from this um, conference and that will go to the sentencing judge and the sentencing judge has the choice of taking this into account or not taking it into account. So we have no control over whether they will or not. But we do have control over whether we will see this through. So what you ask and what you agree to do, we need to make sure that that is surrounded and supported so that that will happen regardless of what the sentencing judge says. But some sentencing judges are really interested in hearing what comes out of these and they may incorporate some of what you've asked and agreed to in their sentencing. Um, so that's a long story <laughs> to tell you about just that experience for me of both being alongside people from different perspectives, hearing their story, but also helping them to hear each other's story and how hard that can be, but also how transforming it can be. And one, one story was um, a young Samoan man, he and his friends were walking along the road and this flashy car came by, nearly ran them over, went round the corner, parked, and this Chinese guy got out of the car young Chinese guy and they came around the corner and they grabbed him and they beat him up so we were having this because they this, this um, one guy had gone to court because of what he'd done to this Chinese guy um, in the process of hearing these stories he the young Samoan guy and his his support people heard that this young Chinese guy was not a rich entitled Chinese person he was actually a poor student um, and the car didn't belong to him, it belonged to his friend, and he didn't have family support here. And equally, he heard what these guys were doing and how they were actually supporting some friends and had taken them off to play some basketball, and, and they were concerned for these young friends. And, and so they were kind of... And in the process of the story being told, this beautiful moment came where the Chinese guy said... All my friends think Samoans are terrible, but I know you are real, you're not. And the Samoan guy says, all my friends think Chinese are just, you know, here for what they can get, but I know you're not. And the final thing, when we were getting ready to leave, they gave each other a hug. And it's like this beautiful sto story of these two young men who, because they were brought face to face with the reality of each other, it changed their stereotypes. You know, I haven't told that story very well, but it was an amazing thing to be part of. And so what I'm going to invite us to do today is to think about those times when we've got difficult conversations to have, 
how we enable ourselves to be prepared for those conversations, but then also how we help ourselves to be present when we're in them. Yeah. And some of those are going to be conversations um, that are to do with our own identity, and that cuts close. That's hard. Um, some of it might be when we are advocating for someone else. Some of it might be when we ourselves are being confronted with the truth that someone else has to tell us. So, um, I'm going to begin with hand these out. I'm going to see them in both directions. So on this pink sheet, there's a bunch of things, um, and um, where there'll be some opportunities to do some practice as we go along. I'm not sure if I've got enough, but hopefully I do. relatively recently so that it's reasonably fresh but something that is finished so this is not an occasion where, that you're still working on but something an occasion when you are in this place of having to have a difficult conversation with somebody um, that, that you've now had so we're not judging whether you did it right or wrong but just to get yourself into the experience and I want you to think about whether you knew that conversation was coming or not, or whether it was sprung upon you. And when you were in that conversation, how you managed yourself and the conversation, and then what it was that you did when the conversation was finished. So three pieces, the beginning, the middle, and the, the end. So did you know it was coming? How did you manage when you were in the midst of it? And what did you do afterwards? Anybody think of an example? Without um, telling us the whole story, um, is there someone who's willing to tell us, like in maybe five words, what, what the difficult conversation was what, and whether you knew it was coming? Is it not over there? Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Um, I didn't know it was coming. Yeah. Uh, it was a conversation with my ex-wife after my 12-year-old son said he wanted to live just with me. Someone else who's willing to... I'm not sure who's in the room, but if I know you, <laughs> stays in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good point. These stories are our stories. Um, you can retell your own story, but you can't retell someone else's. To bring yep. you into Nick, just on that point you just said, you know, this is being recorded. That's okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So at the end, we'll just check whether anybody does want something that's said edited out. Thanks. Anybody else who's willing to just share the situation, just so that we get a sense of these all different kinds of difficult conversations? Yes. I guess my own was when I told mum that I was gay, and she basically said I'm going to hell. That's hard. Yeah. That's a really hard one. So you knew it was coming, (laughs) and it was hard. Yeah. I had a situation where um, the boss at work said uh, um, one of my colleagues who wasn't there um, on that day, uh, do you mind actually having a conversation with her about this? And I'm going, oh, this isn't going to go well at all. And it didn't go well. Um, And the follow-up was me trying to hunt for someone to go, look, this is what's happening now. How do I try and fix the the relationship of something which I don't feel like surprise one. So yep. I was running a workshop and uh, just uh, as a part of the exercises we were talking about what they appreciated about others in different teams cross team collaboration and someone said so and so's sexy dress and I thought oh my god how am I going to handle this <laughs> yeah. So there's all sorts of difficult conversations. Some of them uh, get right to the heart of who we are, like your conversation with your mum about being gay. Some of them are in the context of our work, two stories about in the context of the work that we're doing and having to, and being kind of put on the spot about how to deal with someone else's behaviour. And some of it is in our personal life. in in the relationships we have that are the ongoing ones. Um, And I think the most important thing for me about everything that we share in this workshop is that my perspective is that it's about relationship and building relationship and working at keeping relationship. That doesn't mean um, at the um, cost of our safety but it does mean sometimes um, sacrificial giving. Um, and so, yeah, some, yeah, sometimes we have to give sacrificially of ourselves in the conversation. We, and, and that's a hard one, but that's true of any relationship. So if we want relationships to grow and continue, there are times when we have to be willing to say, I'm sorry. Well, there are times when we have to be willing to say, yes, I'll do that even though I don't have any energy to do it. 
um, there are times when the right thing to do is to sacrifice something of our own in order to keep the relationship going. But for it to be mutual, it can't always be you doing the sacrificing. Yeah. So um, that's, for me, at the heart of what's important when we come to difficult conversations, that we're about enabling relationship. And some of that means that we need to be able to be honest with each other because relationship doesn't go deep unless we are able to be honest with each other. So um, on our pink sheet here, um, I've got prepare if you can or when you can. So mm -hmm. some of those situations we, that were shared are times when we didn't know a difficult conversation was coming. But here's my little list. It's my little list of what I do um, when I know a difficult conversation is coming. First of all, pray. Um, that's really important. It may not be in words, but actually sit still or stand still. <laughs> Open myself to the Holy One. Ask for grace that even if I can't be compassionate, that the compassion of the Holy One can somehow be present in that space. Now that might be a thing that I do right in the instant, <laughs> but hopefully if I know about it, it's something that I give myself space to kind of sit and marinate in that kind of compassion. Pray for the person. Pray with genuine care <coughs> for the person or the people that you're going to be engaging with. Um, when we choose love for those people, it's much harder to be frightened of what's going to happen. And yes, there will be fear in this approach of, of a difficult conversation. Um, but, you know, John's thing about perfect love drives out all fear. If we allow the space for love, it means there's not so much space for fear. If you get the chance to ask for some prayer anchors, some people who will be praying for you while you're having this difficult conversation. They don't need to know the detail of the conversation. Just let them know that you need their prayerful support hold, to hold you in the light, to hold the person or the people in the light. And if there's something particular that you need, ask them to pray for that. Maybe you just need to be open, or maybe you need to have some more love, or maybe you need clarity, or maybe you need to keep your cool. What, you know, whatever it is that you need for you to be the best person you can be in the conversation, ask them to pray for that. Think about what you want from the conversation. Don't go into the conversation thinking, oh man, this is going to be hard. But what, what do I want out of this? Make yourself some mental bullet points. I want to be able to show this person that I do genuinely care for them, or I want, to, I want this person to understand what the boss wants, and I want to be as clear about that as possible. I want to be able to come out the other end of this conversation with them being able to say back to me what it is that the boss wants them to know. Um, maybe even um, for, for you my friend who had to talk to your mum who said you were going to hell maybe your thing that you most wanted in this conversation the, the one thing that you knew you could get out of it was that she actually knew something about you that she hadn't known before and maybe that's the only thing that you could hope for in that case but it's like I'm going to go into this and I'm going to tell her that this 
there's something that is about me. And maybe you might have, you know, if you had a chance to, you might have wanted to start with, I know that you love me and this is part of myself. And I know perhaps you don't love that, but this is part of me. Yeah. Um, if appropriate, and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, invite that person who you meet or the people you're meeting with to pray with you, either before or afterwards. Because inviting them to be able to be present to God, to be able to be present to an openness of heart, means that the conversation starts on a slightly deeper um, kind of footing. When you've had the conversation, thank them for taking the time, even if it was hard going. So thank them for what you can thank them for. <laughs> Don't thank them for something disingenuously, but thank them for you. And then plan to have someone to debrief with after. And you talked about that. You went off and found someone to talk to about. Whoa. Yeah. That was pretty much the expression. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to spell that. Thank you for that. And as I said, some, some of the above can be used even if there isn't time to prepare. And they're things that um, are little uh, resources in the, the backpack of life that you get better at when you practice them. So if you never enter into difficult conversations, you never get to practice these skills and these, these strategies. So maybe it's about looking for places to actually practice them. <laughs> Um, the things that are next on the page are um, they're from the book um, Crucial Conversations. Has anybody read that book? Nobody. Excellent. It's not a it's not a churchy book. It's a um, kind of business um, book, but it's got some fantastic. Um, it's like every page has got tools on it. Um, so it's called Crucial Conversations: Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. So there's lots and lots of stuff in that book that's really worth having. If you uh, kind of know that you're um, in, particularly in situations where there may be crucial conversations, well, most of us are, really, because we live life, um, um, then it's a good book to have on your shelf. And it's also a good book to be able to have conversations about with others as you support one another to do crucial conversations well. So first of all, two rules of thumb. Learn to look. <clears throat> when you're in those crucial conversations, notice. Notice what's going on around you. Notice not only the words that are being said, but the kind of um, what the person's face looks like. Are their eyes tearing up? Have their cheeks gone red? Um, what are they doing with their hands? What's happening to their body? Are they sitting forward on their seat? Are they everything crossed? Are they looking at you or are they not? But also notice, as well as those things like this, and, and the tone of voice, so as well as all of those physical things, notice what's not being said. Um, notice um, the kinds of words that are being used. Is it mostly emotional? Is it mostly factual? Is the person being present in this conversation or are they kind of hiding themselves away? But also... Notice what's going on in yourself. So what's happening to my breathing? Um, what's happening to my emotions? Um, is stuff being triggered for me by what they're saying? And if you do notice these things and they're kind of getting in the way, it's really important not to, um, 
to kind of blame yourself for them, but just to notice them. Notice them as a kind of resource, because if I notice that I'm being triggered by what this person's saying, maybe there's some stuff in my own story that gives me some insight into what they're doing. But don't assume that it does. Check it out. Notice. Look. Take a look. Yeah. Um, as I talked about standing in the other shoes, try and see what you might look like to them. That can be quite telling. <laughs> and then notice if it's become a battle rather than a conversation. As I've got three different ways of, of right or four. Are we playing games or are we in dialogue? Are we trying to change people's minds or are we in dialogue? Are we trying to be strategic or are we in dialogue? Are we trying to justify ourselves or are we in dialogue? And if we notice for ourselves and for the other that we've kind of got into that place where it's, we're not being in relationship anymore, maybe find some words to say, say exactly that, state what you're noticing. Notice that we kind of seem to be in a battle. Can we, can we try and um, kind of refigure things and, and start again? And the second is, so learn to look and make it safe. Safe for you and safe for the others who are in the conversation. Show a real interest in how they see things. Be curious about it. So tell me, tell me how, how you understand this, or that's interesting. I, I'm wondering how you got to that point, or um, what made that true for you? You know, some real... And if, if honesty and humility require it, apologise. You know, if you've been shouting at the person saying, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't be doing that, let me start again. And if things get really heated, and you need to, just say, can we just take a break? And walk away from it for time. Yeah, well, maybe walk away, or maybe just say, I just, I just need to stop for a minute. Um, and then this great little mnemonic, um, separate fact from story. Um, both are important. You need to hear each other's story, but you also need to be able to tell the difference between the emotions and the feelings and the story we're telling ourselves and the facts that um, describe behaviour and something that's happened. Um, so start yourself with sharing your own facts rather than the story. Then tell your story and give your perspective and acknowledge that it is from your point of view. Ask the other. How do they see it? What ideas do they have? If you're work, trying to work something out, you might have some ideas about working it out, but they might have some ideas too. Remember the jewel that no one can see every single side of it. Speak tentatively. Confidently, but tentatively. So like, you know where you come from, but don't make it sound like it's the only way. So I'm thinking maybe, you know, using words like that. It shows that you... You understand, but you don't know everything about it yet. And then this idea of encouraging testing. Because you're testing for yourself. Am I open to the other person's views? Am I talking about the real issue? And kind of coaching them to help you see different ways. Like, this is how I think it should work. But, but tell me if I'm wrong. You know, give me some, some other ways of looking at it so that we can work it out together. Because that's what it's about, working it out together. Um, 
So, across the page, I've got a little activity that I'd like you to do. And this comes from a program by Joyce and um, Tim Savage, who um, came to New Zealand from the States a long time ago now, um, maybe the 1990s, I think it was. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And they ran a course called Lab 1, Calling and Caring Skills. And then they came back and ran another course called Lab 2, which was teaching people to teach the first course. Um, and that was very uh, kind of structured. You learned a skill and then you practised it, then you learned another skill and you practised it. So this is a skill um, that I thought we could practise, and it's called fogging. Um, who's driven in really, really thick fog? People who've lived in the Waikato. <laughs> it looks dense, but actually there's no resistance to moving through it. It's just you can't see. And so this, this skill is about removing the resistance. Um, and so when somebody says something to you that makes you feel like fighting back, agree with what you can agree with in the criticism that they make. So, uh, for instance, um, you never give me your full attention. You're always texting someone else when you're with me. You're right. I did start looking at my phone just now. I started thinking about the new person who's coming to see me at 10 o'clock and I thought they might send me a message. But it's your time now. I'll put my phone away and I'll give you my full attention. See how that took the sting out? So it's like, actually, you're right. Rather than, well, I'm really busy and I've got someone else coming soon and it's, you know... It's very easy to want to justify ourselves. So agree with the bit you can agree with. And then there's one further step, and that is add a request for further information from the person. So you don't give very good examples about these skills. It's true. There's definitely room for improvement. Excuse me. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah. I didn't like the word don't. Could you say, can you give me some examples? Because don't think some wrong. <laughs> you don't. You know, if you're in an argument or, yeah. and you say you don't do this, you don't. Do yeah, yeah. So this it's is more the, of the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure yeah. Um, can you give me some good examples, please? <laughs> As a way of rephrasing that question. So, so what I've got given you there is what the person attacks us with. Oh, right. Yeah. So they said, you don't give very good examples of these skills. Okay. And the response is, it's true. There is definitely room for improvement. Yeah. So you're exactly right. Don't come back with another don't. Yeah. You're, you're trying to go with what you can agree with. It, and so it has to be something that you can agree with. You're not being disingenuous. You're not making it up. Right. You've got to be genuine with the person because they'll see through it immediately if you don't. Um, so here's some what they call fogging stems, ways that you might start. So what we're going to do is we're going to form into little groups of five or around about five. And what we're going to do is we're going to each come up with a negative thing to say to the person the person next to us and they're going to come back with the fog so for instance want to have a go sure okay let's see if you can try and make it something that's real you've got such a scruffy shirt 
Uh, that's true, I did get it second hand, but I support getting things second hand because it's better for the environment. And if you were looking for a way ahead, what you might do is so you you put a button there. You know what they say? Everything up the everything after after a but everything that came before it doesn't count. Oh, um, so so that was that was a great thing to put on the spot. So you might rather than saying but you might say yes, it's true. I did get get it from a second hand shop. Um, what do you reckon I could do to make it look a bit more tidy? You know? So you're inviting the input from the person. Mm. Yeah. Or you know, yes, that's true. It did come from second hand shop. Oh look, I haven't, I haven't untucked my collar properly. Sorry. You know, like, like actually engaging with what the person has said to you, but doing it in a playful and kind of cutting loose. In a constructive way. Okay, shall we have a, give it a go? So we'll do it in little groups. So if you guys make a group, just bring your seats around. What was surprising about it? It's really hard to say the mean things. Hard yeah. to say the mean things. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It was surprising that it was hard to say the mean things. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very disarming. It's very disarming. And it took a while for people to get a handle on it. Yeah. Like, for instance, yeah. when you were doing you, oh, but I can't, I don't know, but when you did come up with a word, it was suddenly like, oh. Um, as I was talking with this group here, saying that, um, I keep calling you my, our friend, but Aaron. <laughs> Aaron told him his story of that difficult conversation, but he couldn't agree with what his mother said. <laughs> you certainly couldn't. But perhaps you could agree with the fact that it's her point of view. So you could say, yes, I understand that you believe I'm going to help. Um, and um, but I don't know where that goes next. Yeah, you know? but, yeah, but. And, yeah, and so um, I'm thinking that in that conversation yes. there would have been a range of things that yeah. were talked about. So it's not the cure-all for everything. It's not the way to fix the whole conversation. It's a temporary way to bring you back into relationship. So it's not what you use all the time for everything. So it probably wouldn't be the thing that you would use in that, at that particular point in the conversation. Um, so underneath that thing on the pink sheet where it says fogging um, is a little piece written by um, Megan Caldertois, who is... Um, a Baptist minister in Sydney, um, there's a great little resource that comes out of the Church of England from the Archbishop of Canterbury um, called Difference. It's a course that um, is a five-week course to help communities and groups of people learn how to be in difference with each other and still be in relationship. So the little quote I've got in here from him is, reconciliation is not the ending of all difference but the transformation of how we deal with difference, yeah? And so in this course, there are three kind of habits that are encouraged and that people are taught. One is to be curious, and we talked about that before. Listen to each other's stories, see the world through their eyes. Second, be present, showing up and sticking around, learning to encounter others with authenticity, even if you don't agree with them even if you see things differently. And then reimagine, find hope and opportunity in the places where we long to see change. 
So being in there for the long haul, believing that there will be transformation, even if it might not be my lifetime. Yeah. So um, Megan Valdetois and another chap whose name has gone out of my head um, are two people who live in Sydney and they, um, they have become really good friends, but they see things really differently from each other. And she, there's a piece in one of these, um, one of these weeks of difference, the course, where they are interviewed talking about their relationship with one another, how they, they came to be friends and how they maintain being friends. But at the same time, that it doesn't mean that friendship is without difficulty and without pain. And so she writes this piece, and I wonder whether maybe we could just have a few people read for us. Do you want to start, Matt? Sure. We'll go around one, two, three, just paragraphs. So for me as an ordained female minister, start there. For me as an ordained female minister, positions on gender roles aren't abstract. They're highly personal. I've had people accuse me of being power hungry. I've had others tell me I'm in sin. It, it isn't just that we disagree, but for some, what to me is a faithful service is instead unfruitful ambition. It speaks of my integrity as a person and the authenticity of my life of discipleship. <coughs> More than that, though, as a female pastor, I have been the recipient of many stories of trauma. Women tell me how theologies which do not champion their full worth and equality have been used to harm them. There are many theological and ethical positions I hold which matter to me, but I am called to this one. It is my burden. The podcast and project with Michael Jensen have brought me into a relationship, not only with him, but with many others whom I disagree with about gender roles. You might think this becomes easier with time, it does not. Indeed, the more I care for the person, the more this disagreement me, causes me grief. Now, it is no longer people out there who disagree with me. Instead, it is people I love and respect. I haven't reached some point of peace about, I haven't reached some point of peace about this disagreement. Rather, I continue to weep when I come up against it. I hope for change and am dejected when change is slow or absent. It would be so easy to walk away from this grief. I would not need to go, not, I would not need to do so with animosity. I could just stop reaching out, stop developing friendships. Does God really expect me to carry this burden? And yet, as I turn my eyes to Jesus in this time of Lent, I am reminded that God has consistently and persistently chosen to suffer this grief again and again. For it is the cost of love and the companion of hope. My faith calls me to what seems unreasonable hope. Or is it unreasonable? After all, as Paul puts it in Romans 5 verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. And so, here I am again, choosing hope, and looking forward to the age to come in which we will know fully and will rejoice together in eternal friendship. Powerful, isn't it? Most powerful for me is that second to last paragraph. Um, I'm reminded that God 
has consistently and persistently chosen to suffer this grief again and again. Then we stop and think about it. All the gifts that God has given us, which we continually seem to be throwing into God's face. All those ways in which we do not live up to, and this is not to make us somehow blameworthy, but our fragility means that we are unable to. Um, and God asks us to do things sometimes we just choose not to. And it grieves God. But God keeps loving us consistently and persistently while grieving. Because that's the cost of love and it's the companion of hope. Now, I'm a real fan of hope. I think it's the poor cousin of faith, hope, and love. Faith and love get lots of press. Hope gets forgotten. But I think it's one of the most precious gifts that our Christian faith has to offer to the world. And that hope isn't that I hope it'll be sunny tomorrow. It might or it might not. That hope is based on relationship. The relationship that we have with God and with our sisters and brothers and siblings down through the ages who are people of faith. We know. We know deeply in our gut. We know deeply in our loins. We are known and we know. And we trust. We trust the one who is the ground of our being. And we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we trust that relationship. And that's why we believe in the resurrection. Not because we think that somebody's body got risen on the third day, but because we trust what that spirit brings us in our life and calls us to in our life. So hope is a wonderful resource for us when we are in difficult conversations. That hope makes us brave enough to ask for help. So when we're doing that little fogging exercise, that we risk vulnerability in saying, yes, I did do whatever I did do. Can you help me be better? This relationship matters enough to me that I'm willing to put myself out there and invite what you have to offer me. Now, it's all very well me standing here and saying this in a room full of people who are listening to my every word. <laughs> but when we're in the midst of a difficult conversation, it's not always easy to remember. And sometimes what we have to do is that thing of apologising and saying, can we start again? I want this relationship to work. I want whatever it is, this is, it is the reason why we're having this conversation to have the best outcome possible. And I hope for something that maybe we can't achieve right now, but maybe eventually it will be achieved. So I am going to give you one more piece of card. On one side of it is some information about that course, um, difference. And on the other side is, I think, a very familiar prayer. It speaks of grace, which is what we need so much in those conversations. Grace for ourselves, grace for the other. It speaks of the love of God, 
What does grace mean? So grace is a word that speaks about yeah, about the willingness to be giving. So if we are gracious, we are not pushing ourselves. If we are gracious, we are allowing space. And God is gracious to us. God doesn't push God's self on us, but God offers God's self in a spacious way. And we see that in the person of Jesus. He is a personification of that grace. He is the gift to us. He is the one who pours out everything, who is willing to be vulnerable and tortured and killed, not to pay some price, but to show us the depth of love that God has for us, to show us the depth of love that we are called to offer to one another. Something in that prepare section, you can you can plan to show grace yeah. in a difficult conversation. You can plan to be gracious and you can ask God to help you to be gracious and you can ask your prayer anchors to pray for grace for you. So this this is a, a piece of scripture from 2 Corinthians 13. Um, and I'm going to invite us to say it in Te Māori shortly. But I thought those three things that are prayed for in that piece of scripture and in that prayer, which in, in the Anglican tradition anyway, we stick an extra word in there. Yep. We, lots of people can say it um, without looking at the page and looking at one another and making it a blessing. Um, grace and love and that whole thing about in Māori, fifinga kahitanga. So I wanted to translate that. It's, it's almost impossible to translate and I, I struggled to find the right words to put there because it wasn't an English word to put it there. <laughs> but it's something about gift. And it's something about the receiving of the gift. And fifinga tahitanga is about receiving the gift together. So the Holy Spirit is something which is given to us, not, not just for ourselves, but it's given to us together, for us together. And so when we are moving into a space where we're having a difficult conversation with one other or a group of others, we need that receiving togetherness. So I thought we might stand, and if you need to, hold on to the card to pray it for one another, and if you don't need to, put down. And we might stand and look across the room at one another, we'll say it slowly, and pray this. Blessing for one that we've finished four minutes early. <laughs> okay. Have a seat. Has anybody got a, any questions or anything better than they want to say? Um, I just think the other meaning of the word grace, that's graceful, yeah. beautiful, yeah. and general. Yeah. Yeah, utter bias is a beautiful word here. It's also, it's also utter bias speaks to a certain degree about humility and that idea of the 
It's, um, it goes to one of the things I, I have observed is often, I mean, not, not in some examples, but often a difficult conversation that you know you're heading into is not necessarily about what you think it's about. There's often, um, you know, something else driving it beneath the surface is the real heart of the matter. Do you think it's um, it's being self-aware because you've got filters? Yeah. You know, and then and you see you might be having a meaning to what the conversation's going to be about, and you can hear it's nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that wonderful the wonderful resource of the Holy Spirit is that it can nudge us and go, come on a minute. Yeah. Listen. Oh I got that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stop, stop, shh, shh, listen. <laughs> um I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, I'm a priest, I spend time with couples before they get married and um, we spend time crafting a liturgy that will express something of who they are together um, but we also spend time talking about who they are together <laughs> and, and, and I often say to them so that we can craft a liturgy that actually expresses who you are together but the first thing I do is I give them a little sheet which has questions about the way they do conflict. And I invite them to go away and each look at the questions individually before they talk to each other about it and then. And um, I say to them, the reason why I start there is because there will always be things that we met as a conflict. Conflict can either be seen as a problem or as a wonderful resource for the deepening of your relationship. And so it's important to to understand the ways that we do conflict, the ways that are our, like we started off at the beginning, our default <laughs> to how we do it, to understand each other's reason for doing that. And so I also ask them to think about the way their parents did conflict because that will be subconsciously affecting either by doing it the same way or by reacting against it. Um, but also, you know, that, that out of conflict, we learn things about each other. So your comment about sometimes we go into that expecting this to be the reason why we're talking but we learn some other stuff underneath that. And so it's it's wonderful grist for the mill. And although it's hard, it's worth it. <laughs> We've got the grace here. Yeah. Up on the top right, is that the second chapter in the English or? Yeah, so the bit in brown is a translation of the black on the left. It was me just trying to show you how those oh, words. Of the body, body. So, utter fire is grace and utter is love, keeping the yep. tongue as you see. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry, Mr. Exodus, the noise party. 
what you're saying about fifi tanga? Fifi tanga is yeah. the receiving of, receiving together, kind of weaving together, um, the kind of a, a, not achieving together, but having, having together. Together we have this. Together, together, which is translated as fellowship. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.